Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. Hello again. I've been thinking recently about books that most impacted my ministry as a pastor and as a theologian. And I'm sharing these with you because the quotes and insights may provide some useful information to you in your Christian life and ministry. Now, before switching off, because maybe you're not a pastor or a theologian, please bear in mind that all who are born again of the Holy Spirit have some form of ministry. And all of us have a theology that informs us, even though we may not call it by that name. I also list some of my favorite books that I encountered before I became a Christian, and some I read as a young Christian, so there's something here for everyone. I'm not listing the Bible here, by the way, because it's a sort of a given for every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Scriptures are the most impacting collection of writings. But just for your interest, though, I consider the New International Version, that's the NIV, of 1984, that's the 1984 edition, as the most readable and as accurate as any translation can be. Now I'm referring to the 1984 edition only because the translators of later editions seem to have lost their way a touch in gender-neutral language and other issues that cast doubt on the accuracy of the translation. But no version is perfect, and so I also like to consult the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the New Living Translation. All right, pre-Christian books. I was born again of the Spirit at the age of 30, so the books that impacted me most in my teen and early adult years were not necessarily by Christian authors. Here are the three from among several that opened my mind to different ways of thinking and fed into my later worldview. The first was The Fountainhead by Anne Rand. Now the main character of this book, Howard Rourke, was inspired by the well-known American architect Frank Lloyd Wright. In my late teens I aspired to be an architect and was forever drawing floor plans of houses and so I immediately related to this novel. The setting for the book was the profession of architecture, because it was a field that combined art, technology, and business, and thus allowed Anne Rand to illustrate her primary theme in several areas of life. Her main theme was individualism as a philosophy with profound life implications. A later publication of hers was a collection of her essays entitled The Virtue of Selfishness, presenting her radical moral code of rational selfishness and its opposition to the morality of altruism. Now, I was an enthusiastic unbeliever at that time, and Anne's thinking inspired me and played some part in the driving ambition that characterized my life until the age of 30. There could hardly be a philosophy and a worldview more opposed to biblical Christianity. However, my esteem for this book set me up for the mind-challenging influence of the next book that impacted me. That next book was Dear and Glorious Physician by Mary Taylor Caldwell. Now some folks say, now for something completely different, well, this is it. This book took years of research in the making. It encompasses the life and works of the medical doctor Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts in the Bible. She presents him as an authentic man with a history, hopes, frailties, and virtues. And when I read the book, 
I was already roughly familiar with the biblical Luke, thanks to my believing parents and my years at Sunday school. In Mary's depiction of this man, my eyes were open to the possibility that the gospel might be real and relevant to my life. It also provided me with a profoundly different worldview to the one promoted by Anne Rand. Instead of serving as the highest goal, self-serving, I should say, as the highest goal, here was a portrait of self-giving by a person committed to the Lord Jesus Christ as the highest goal. The third influential book at that time in my life was The Looking Glass Universe by John Briggs and David Peet. This book added another dimension altogether to my developing world view. In 1984, John, a PhD in psychology and a professional writer, assisted David, a holistic physicist, in writing this fascinating book. The blurb on the back cover describes it as a mind-boggling journeys of several prominent scientists, including David Bohm, Carl Prebram, Ilya Prigroni, and Rupert Sheldrake, and whose startling new theories could revolutionize our understanding of the universe. A lot of what I had learned at school transformed and reconfigured for me into a vision of a universe of subatomic particles, quantum realms, relativity beyond relativity, morphogenic zones, for goodness sake, and much more. At first, I was indeed mind-boggled, but then I became fascinated and finally delightfully informed. At the age of 30, I was born again to the Spirit of God, and my reading choices changed radically. So, books I read as a spiritually young Christian. In the first decade of my life in Christ, my major need was to learn to know God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At that time, I formulated what I still believe to be a statement of the purpose of life, which is to know Jesus, to become like Him, and to help others to do likewise. These three books that impacted me most during that period all fed into this need to know God, rather than just to know about him. So the first of these three was Love, Acceptance and Forgiveness by a man called Jerry Cook. One of the main themes of this book is summed up in the statement, Love, Acceptance, Forgiveness. Those three things are absolutely essential to any ministry that will consistently bring people to maturity and wholeness. This idea weaves through the book. Another theme which prepared me wonderfully for the years of pastoral leadership that would soon follow was the concept that the church should be positioned as a force and not as a field. Now, essentially, the field mentality is where a church sees its buildings, programs, preachers and so on as means of getting people to come to them, you know, come play on my field. The force mentality, on the other hand, sees the church as members going out into the world as a force for gospel truth and wholeness. Now, I will use Jerry's words, not mine here, to explain the important differences between these two ideas so you can get a kind of feel for the book. He wrote, In the field concept, the organized church is where people come to do the work of God. But Jesus said, this field is the world. That's in Matthew 13, 38. Instead of the world being the field, we have made the church the field. 
But in the church as a force model, the church is people equipped to serve, meeting needs everywhere in Jesus' name. And then this book addresses the following questions, and I'll continue the actual quotes from Jerry. One, what does the church as a field emphasize? It emphasizes the need for a great deal of visibility. The leaders of the church must take on a very significant PR role. The happenings that take place in this building must be of such a nature that people will be attracted. Program and promotion become very important. So the church's emphasis becomes visibility, organization, program and promotion. What does the church as a force emphasize on the other hand? Worship, training and fellowship. Because these are the things that produce spiritual people who can meet others' needs in Jesus' name. 2. What goals does the church as a field have? Well, they are defined in terms of the numbers and attendance of the budget of facility. Facility is vitally important to the concept of the church as a field. Because the only way to increase the field is by enlarging the facility. What goals does the church as a force set? Each member to come to wholeness, to be equipped, to be released into the world to minister. Very different. Then, how does the church as a field go about accomplishing its ministry? Well, this work, once the people are gathered, centers around a professional. And when there are more heads than his hands can take care of, we add another professional. Everything is designed to draw people. And it is the role of the pastor to help Christians to start living in the light of truth. Ministry becomes a positional identity within the organization. And as a result, the individual member is easily misled about the meaning of Christian service and is often reduced to a spectator. Opposed to this, the church as a force sees its primary ministry as equipping and encouraging members to do the work of the ministry. Lastly, what motivates the church as a field? Their primary motivation is to get people in and to keep them in. This results in an enormous amount of programming, because this kind of church must also get people serving the church. Leaders begin to exploit people. They reach people not because they are hurting, but because they can help the church. What, on the other hand, is the motivation of the church as a force? What does it try to accomplish? Well, they try to bring healing to the whole man, to every area of a person's life. The church as a force becomes a healing agency to the community, not a place of refuge from the community. Nor is the church a competitor with the world. Jerry Cook had much more to say that was valuable to me, but I think you can get the idea from the above quotes why I decided very definitely to be part of building a local church with a force and not a field mentality. The next book was The Sense of His Presence by David Maines. This book starts with the question, what would happen if Jesus came to your church this Sunday? A good question, right? Now, this must have stayed in my memory for decades because a few years ago, I wrote a series of articles titled what kind of church would Jesus attend? Now, David Main summed up his responses to the question with, The answers revolve around a single standard. Is there a strong, abiding sense of the presence of the Lord here? 
He then addressed the following eight specific areas in which the presence of God needs to be sensed. Do people perceive the presence of Christ to the degree that they can prepare to truly worship Him? Is Christian love expressed in such a remarkable way that all can see the living Christ is truly present among His people? Is victory over sin a quality which consistently marks the people at all levels? Are the people of this church excited about the privilege they have as subjects of the King to serve Him? Are they eager to learn more of the Scriptures and to hear about personal application of the Word? Do they see value in spending quality time talking to Christ? Are church members sharing with others the news that their Lord is truly in the midst? And lastly, is there a general sense of well-being, a feeling that life in the church is as God intended it to be? With hindsight, I can see that it was not the answer to these eight questions that impacted me so much as the underlying question that gave rise to them. The underlying question is, is there a sense of his presence in the church? I believe a glaring omission from David's list is the question, is there evidence of the ministry of the power of the Holy Spirit? That's vitally important as well. My list um, as a more mature Christian that I wrote about was as follows. Reverent and adoring worship, passionate prayer, serious attention to biblical preaching, an attitude of faith, ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit, anointed leadership, expressions of love, an impartation of life and wholeness, a desire to share the presence of God with others. I think it is these things which indicate the sense of God's presence. Then the third in this group of books is Return from Tomorrow by George Ritchie. This book had a great impact on me in my early Christian years. I did not accept everything that he claimed to have experienced or his analysis of these events, but his core experience really blew me away. You see, as a 20-year-old, George had a near-death experience during which he was caught up into heaven to stand before Jesus. He had become a Jesus follower in his early teens, but then he had wandered away as teens often do, from the reality of his faith. Here are some of the things he experienced when he stood before the Lord and Saviour. He writes, Far more even than power, what emanated from his presence was unconditional love, an astonishing love, a love beyond my wildest imagining. This love knew every unlovable thing about me. Everything that, I'd, that had ever happened to me were simply there, in full view, contemporary and current, all seemingly taking place at the moment. Every detail of twenty years of living was there to be looked at. The good, the bad, the high points, the run of the mill, and with this all-inclusive view came a question. It was implicit in every scene, and like the scenes themselves seemed to proceed from the living light beside me. What did you do with your life? No condemnation came from the glory shining around me. He was not blaming or reproaching. He was simply loving me, filling the world with himself and yet somehow attending to me personally and waiting for my answer to the question that still hung in the dazzling air. The question, like everything else proceeding from him, 
had to do with love. How much have you loved with your life? Have you loved others as I am loving you totally, unconditionally? Now, what I learned, now, more than learned, absorbed into my life from this book, was that, one, God is good and loving. Two, that we all will stand before him one day to give an account for a life lived. For those born of the Spirit, there will be a review of earthly thoughts, words and deeds that allows us to see the reality of our life on earth in all its glory, failure, sin and absolution. The result of this review will determine our utility and rewards in heaven. And for those who do not already know Jesus, the result will be an honest acceptance of the righteousness and justice of their separated state. 3. How we spend our time on earth, the kind of relationships we build, is vastly, infinitely more important than we can know. Now these things are biblically true and endorsed, taught and manifested by Jesus Christ during his years on earth. Then, at the age of 40, I became a full-time local church pastor. And once again, my reading choices changed. So, books I read as a pastor and theologian. The first three books I listed at the start of this talk challenged my view of moral values, spiritual reality, and the nature of the world in which we live. And the second group of three challenged my views of God's nature and character. I read many other books on these subjects areas, but once I became a pastor, the nature of the books impacting me shifted. In the first decade as a Christian and lay leader, I developed fairly comprehensive opinions on the nature of the Bible, the centrality of Jesus, the church, and ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. By the time I started leading a local church, I had crystallized the fundamentals of what I believed into three bylines, Bible-based, Jesus-centered, and spirit-dependent. I built a local church and later a seminary on these three foundations. And so it's not surprising that the books that had the greatest impact upon me fell into these three categories. Now, they did add some new things to my teaching and thinking, but their greatest purpose was to confirm and reinforce my theology and church practice. You know, until I read them, I'd felt a little like somebody singing into the wind. But these books helped me to realize that I was actually part of a choir and that perhaps the wind was changing direction. The first of this last group of three was The Scripture Principle by Clark Pinnock. I've read a lot of Clark Pinnock's work, enjoyed his biography, and even communicated with him by email. He's probably my theological role model because of the way he went about doing theology. Some called him an experimental theologian, criticized him for this, but to me, he was a brave and brilliant man who was prepared to write about things he was still processing, and in this way, he invited the reader into his thinking, research, and developing convictions. As a mature Christian, and more particularly as by this time that I read this book as a qualified theologian, I'd become disappointed by the rigid stance of most evangelical scholars concerning the nature of the Bible. Clark had grown up in that world, but had been brave and honest enough to write about the Bible as it really is. The subtitle of the book is Reclaiming the Full Authority of the Bible, and his contention was, 
that this can only be achieved by abandoning the non-biblical beliefs that the scriptures are entirely divine, inerrant, and the primary source of truth. Now, my view had long been that Jesus, not the Bible, is the source of truth, but that it is rather the divinely inspired revelation of Jesus and the trustworthy rule of faith for the church. Clark wrote, The Bible is a witness, although the primary one, to the revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christology, and not bibliology, occupies center stage in Christianity. God gave the Bible to the church to bear an authoritative witness to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Concerning biblical inerrancy, Clark wrote, God could have produced an errorless Bible, but we have to look to see if this is what he will to do. Does the New Testament and did Jesus teach the perfect errorlessness of the scriptures? No. With regard to the nature and composition of the Bible, Clark wrote, The Bible is God's word in human language. These God-human aspects should not be disassociated. God has willed the human characteristics of the text. God did not negate the gift of freedom when he inspired the Bible, but worked alongside human authors in order to achieve by wisdom and patience the goal of a Bible that expresses his will for our salvation. Of course, there's a lot more value in this book than in these selective quotes. So much so that I've read through the book three times to date. Right, then there is the Jesus Manifesto, Restoring the Supremacy and Sovereignty of Jesus Christ, by Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola. The central theme of this book is summed up by what Lenin Frank wrote, which is, The center and the circumference of the Christian life is none other than the person of Christ. We can rightly say that God spoke himself into human life in the person of the Lord Jesus. For this reason, John called Christ the Logos, the living word of God. God's word is a person. The one true God has revealed himself completely and finally in Jesus. This Holy Spirit has come to reveal, to glorify, to magnify, to unveil, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes what is true of Christ and makes it real and alive in the lives of human beings. Jesus Christ makes scripture intelligible. He is the key that unlocks the entire canon. According to scripture, Jesus Christ, and not the doctrine about him, is the truth. In addition, Jesus Christ, and not the ethic derived from his teaching, is the way. And, in other words, both God's truth and God's way are embodied in a living, breathing person, Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. While Clark Pinnock stressed the need for Christians to be Bible-based, Frank and Len stressed the need for us to be Jesus-centered. In this book, they stressed the supremacy and the sovereignty of Jesus whilst placing this into the context of the Bible and the Holy Spirit. They write, Three features are present in every awakening in the history of the Christian Church. One, a rediscovery of the living word or the scriptures and its authority. Two, a rediscovery of the living Christ and his supremacy. And three, a rediscovery of the living spirit and the gifts and spiritual power manifest in Christ in the context of that culture. God has a history of taking seriously people who take the eternal word seriously. 
Jesus himself said that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. But because we don't trust Jesus to do what he says he will do, or believe that he is who he says he is, who have not caught a glimpse of his infinite glory, we sit at drawing boards and draw up programs and methods and draft strategies that we hope might bring people to Christ. But Jesus could not have been clearer. The only begotten Son of God is the draw. Our people and our mission is simply to lift him up in a context that our culture can understand and appreciate. Wherever this happens, the rest will take care of itself. This manifesto also has much to say about how the Christian life is to be lived. They write, The Christian life is properly conceived and experienced is simply a reproduction and a reliving of the life of Jesus. Your Christian life begins with Christ, continues with Christ, and ends with Christ. If Christ is in you, then the Christian life is not about striving to be something you are not. It is about becoming what you already are. There is a vast ocean of difference between trying to compel Christians to imitate Jesus and learning how to impart an implanted Christ. What would Jesus do is not Christianity. Christianity asks, what is Christ doing through me, through us, and how is he doing it? Now, once again, there's a lot more of great value in this book that I've not set out in this truth talk. The last book is Revival, A People Saturated with God by Brian Edwards. The first of the set of three books confirmed my passionate belief in the Bible-based principle, the second in the Jesus-centered principle, and this final book in the Spirit-dependent principle. This book is about revival, but the key to its underlying spiritual dependence theme is a people saturated with God. Brian writes that revival reveals in an exaggerated way those ingredients that God expects always to be present in his church. In the section titled During Revival, Brian deals mainly with a revival of urgency, a revival of Christ-centered preaching, a conviction of sin, and a revival of holiness, a revival of prayer, a revival of worship, and a revival of evangelism, and a few others. All of these are manifestations of the Holy Spirit and all of them occur when Christians are dependent on him. This book is a sort of manual on revival and of great use to the church in these days, but it is also a testimony to the need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. So, in conclusion, you know, I've enjoyed developing this talk because it has caused me to reread parts of books that were so meaningful to me. By doing this, I've become conscious once again of how God has formed or confirmed so many of my key principles through the work of others. I do not embrace everything these authors teach, but have internalized what conforms to the biblical witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all worth reading more than once. In revisiting these nine books, I hope that I have provided you with some valuable information and even inspiration, and perhaps you'll get hold of some of them and be as blessed by them as I have. So God be with you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Truth Talks from Truth is the Word Ministry. If you'd like to share your views, 
read up on related topics or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth is